Last week, we read through Joshua chapter 4. We are going through a series called Taking the Land. I do believe that it is going to be very applicable for us because, as I've mentioned, this promised land can represent a number of things that as I'm preaching, though I may focus on one of those three, the Spirit of God may choose to minister to you in another one of the three or maybe in one I haven't thought of, but make sure that it's simply in line with God's word. Uh, and, and, and so I understand as I go through this series on Joshua that God is going to do this. Uh, the promised land may represent our salvation and all the inheritance that we have received by being in Christ. And so it may represent that leaving Egypt slavery, moving now into the promised land. It may simply represent in general the promises of God that he has dispensed to his people that, through, that are throughout the, the Old and the New Testament. Uh, things such as you'll be the head and not the tail, that God, if you do obey him fully with all of your heart, he will, oh, he will flood your barns and your vats with oil and, uh, well, your barns with grain, not oil. You followed me there, right? And God will do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, all of these promises. And then third, uh, the promised land is taken, it is conquered and it represents our struggle against the forces of evil in this realm. And, and I mentioned either last, I believe it was two weeks ago, that even though it may represent this, remember our struggle in reaching this lost world is not against them. We don't battle them. We battle the spirits behind them because the world, and I include all of us before we uh, were found in Christ, we and this lost world, we were at one time uh, caught in the devil's snare. The Bible says that our eyes were blinded to the hope in the gospel of Christ Jesus, that we were, um, that we were caught in his snare, doing his will. We were, if you will, puppets on a string, and he was the puppet master. That is a scary thought. Uh, not too many people who are lost in this world actually feel that way, but the Bible resolutely declares we were God's enemies. But God chose to rescue us. So as we go and we are seeking to, uh, as Ray Comfort says, plunder hell and populate heaven, that, and I believe he uses that phrase in hell's best kept secret, but our, our goal in doing this is that we are in prayers, even str prayer strategies, uh, seeking to overcome these demons of darkness that are blinding eyes. And that God, is, as 2 Timothy 2 says, grant them repentance that leads to a knowledge of the truth. And so this is, this is what we are talking about in this third area of application. And today, we're going to be simply talking uh, not so much about those three areas, but we have been talking about a memorial. And you just pick and choose as the Spirit would speak to you which of those three this might fall into. But I believe God wants to do miracles in our midst so that we build memorials. And I mentioned to you last week, I'm not good at taking pictures. My wife will hand the camera over to me and say, okay, Mike, it's your turn to take pictures at your daughter's birthday party. And I say, oh, no problem. By the end, when she asked me how many I took, I have to confess like one or two. I forgot. I'm sorry. And there it was. It was hanging around my neck the entire time. She loves to take pictures. I mentioned when she went to England with some family and friends, she took 30. 1,310 days. Uh, she loves pictures. And those pictures are like memorials. They remind 
reminder of the, and the reminder of the joy that they experienced learning and going to Bath and various places and Jane Austen's home and where she was born and raised, I think it was, right, Kate? Wherever that was, Jane Austen. And, and so, so it was, anyway, they had a great time and pictures are these types of memorials. I believe God wants us to build memorials to his honor. Now we looked at Saul and how he built a memorial unto his honor because he fell into that category, Deuteronomy 8, he had forgotten God. And that means forgetting God doesn't mean you forget his first name. Oh, what was it again? Uh, Jesus, that's right. No, that's not what he's talking about. He is talking about that we become self-reliant and we put God on the shelf. When I grew up, our family Bible had a very special place in which it collected dust. And my mom had a special Bible, and that was hers, and she read it, but none of us, the others didn't, until about the late 70s, God got a hold of my family growing up. I can remember one particular incident, and, and all of you probably have incidences from your past etched into your mind, and it's a rather curious question to ask, how is it that those are etched into your mind? Um, and it's usually because of something rather emotional. Good, to give God glory, or bad in some way. I can remember we, I were vacation, we were vacationing. I can't remember if I was 8, 10, 12, somewhere around in there. We were vacationing, vacationing on the Susquehanna River. Of, uh, my dad's best friend, uh, he owned the cottage there. There was a bank about, I don't know, 10, 15 feet path that led down to it. And we had used the boat that particular day, pulled it ashore. I got waked up around 1, 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. My dad's saying, Michael, you got you and Rob, you need to come with me right now because we got to go down and pull those boats up. And I'm thinking, what on earth? It's like two in the morning. No questions. He bolted out the door and uh, dressed in our best, you know, underwear, you know, 8, 10, 12, dashing out the door, getting soaked because it's apparently raining cats and dogs. And we'd go down and we pull the boat up this pathway, uh, tie it to the house. And my dad says, apparently a hurricane has come in and uh, they're expecting some flooding. Well, they are, we go back to bed, uh, obviously after we change, and and wake up the next morning and my mom is listening to the radio and about 10 o'clock or so in the morning she says okay Dave apparently I have heard that there is I think it was a dike something about a, a dam up a, a dike up a, up the stream something had broken in it and she says I'm wondering if maybe we should just leave and so we packed our things 15 30 minutes we threw things together threw it in the car and we headed out now let me tell you a different story. This is how Satan wanted to have planned it. As we go, got up in the morning and casually ate breakfast, um, around 11 o'clock in the morning, we heard this rumbling and looked out the window and we saw a torrential flood that swept us away and we all died. Now, part of that story is true because there was a torrential flood as we left the cottage, we had to go up about an eight foot rise, which was a railroad track, and we headed out about a half an hour before the waters came down, crested the banks, 
crested up, uh, crested the, the, the uh, came up to the railroad tracks, there was a mud line a foot above a refrigerator. Most refrigerators are about six feet or something, five feet. And it was, it, so there was a mud line of seven feet high. We would have surely died if we had not listened to that radio and had left when we did. Many of us get caught up in the storms of life and we do not act wisely. We fall prey to the devil's tactics when God wants to come in with his own flood that rescues us. He wants us to see his hand and his miracles and he wants us to respond by building these memorials. Now, I'm not talking about a little memorial in your home, maybe pictures, whatever it is. It might be storytelling. We'll get to that in a bit. But God wants to build these types of memorials in our life. But the enemy does not. The enemy wants to shut the door so that God does, is not permitted to come into your life to your rescue and do awesome, amazing things. And I want to talk about at least two of those things that the devil tries to do to keep us from being able to walk this out that we read in Scripture. I do remember another incident. Um, my family during the summer loved to vacation. My dad being an English teacher, there were some summers he didn't work summer school, and so he were able to go on like month-long vacations and so on. That was nice. Um, so we would go, you know, we would go to the White Mountains. We were on, lived on, on the East Coast. We'd go to the White Mountains in New Hampshire. Uh, we always looked forward to camping. We loved jumping off the, the rock edges into gorges, you know, 10, 15 feet up. That was a blast for us kids. We loved, to, we loved the adventure. We loved fishing, all about these vacationing in the White Mountains. We loved the hikes on the Presidential Ridge. And so we would look forward to it. And we'd get into the car full of anticipation. But within an hour, that anticipation wears down to boredom. What do we do? We pull out our comic strips. Iron Man, of course, was my favorite. I didn't realize his real character, by the way. But, you know, Iron Man was, you know, I thought he was cool and all he could do. And, you know, I had my Iron Man comic books. And, but eventually, they got boring. We read all the comic books. And here's what would happen. We would want, instead of focusing on the trip ahead, we began to focus on how my brother would irritate me. And, you know, because we were cramped in there. We had a large family in a station wagon. And I said, you know, Rob or Chris or Dan or whoever was sitting next to me, I said, you know, you keep rubbing up against me. You know, it's really irritating. Okay, stop touching me. And here's what they would do. And they would touch me. And I would say, stop touching me. I'd push him back. And he would push me. And then he would stop. And then he would do this again. And he would touch me. And I would say, Dad, Rob, or Chris, or Dan, they keep touching me. And this would happen over and over. And my dad would say, okay, that happens one more time. You're in for it. Blank. In for it. What does that mean? We eventually became accustomed to what that meant. Uh, eventually, what that meant was my dad had this unique ability to, with one hand, hold the steering wheel, look ahead, and with another eye, look in the rearview mirror and be able to do this and swat us, bam, 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 bam. And so we began to understand what, what this meant. So 
we eventually caught on. And as soon as we would see him, we, I would see his eyes in the rearview mirror. I made sure I was not buckled in, okay? They didn't have seatbelt rules back then. And I had this ability, because I was a small little, little guy. I would slip down into the, where, in front of the seat, behind his, and when he would do this, he would miss me and he would brush the back seat, okay? Um, or if it was my mom, my mom was not as tall as my dad. She was a short lady with shorter arms and I wouldn't have to slip down. I would just have to press myself up against the seat and she would miss us. So you learn these types of things. But the difficulty came when I wasn't sitting in the middle seat, but I was sitting in the back seat. The back seat doesn't face forward like the others do. The back seat faces the back window. And I thought that was cool because you, you got to see everywhere where you had been. And you would see these various, we would play games, but of course, boredom would set in, and what we would do, we would do this. And we would touch, and we would just irritate one another. And that became our sport. And so before you know it, everybody is irritated in the car because we're in the back complaining. Rob touched me again, and my dad would say, if, you, if, I, if I hear from you one more time, I'm pulling over. And we began to learn what I'm pulling over meant. And we tried not to test my dad. My dad had a terrible temper. So we would, we would always test the limits, though. It would, would he pull over this time? Would he pull over this time? And eventually, you know, as you're driving in the right-hand lane, you're looking at the back. The white line is here. When the white line starts moving over and eventually rests to the right, you know that you are in serious trouble. Here's the image that I have that I can still to this day remember as I'm looking out. The white line is here and the window starts to go down. I'm done. I am seriously done. And from that point on, though, there are no images. It's like I've repressed them. I do not remember what happened. I remember seeing my dad's face leaning over and boom, the picture goes blank. I don't know what happened. I managed to live. I survived, I'm telling you the story today, so I'm imagining he didn't take my life. But the truth is that that kind of terror would strike my heart. But I am mentioning this to you because when our focus is off of what God is calling us to do and for the people here taking the land, if our focus gets onto ourself and our problems, serious issues begin to arise. And we're going to get into what that looks like. So today's sermon is just very simply building memorials. Understanding that Satan is a tactician. All of the great world leaders that dominated the world, that conquered the world, Satan was behind every one of them. Satan whispered strategies into their ear. So Satan, having conquered the world many times through many world leaders, is an awesome tactician. And we have to be aware of his schemes. So I'm going to read just another portion of Joshua chapter 4. And I want us to focus on some of these ways that the enemy will seek to get in. And keep God's grace, if I can word it this way, at bay from our lives. Starting with verse, chapter again, Joshua 4, verse 4. So Joshua called together the 12 men who had appointed... He had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. This, of course, is where the ark of the covenant was. 
Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. Now skip over, if you would, to verse 14. That day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they revered him all the days of his life, just as they had revered Moses. Let me explain to you here how significant this is, because I am going to be coming back to it, but let's understand that God needed to do this, because if the people could not rally behind their leader, Israel was sunk. He was going to be leading them into divine uh, divinely birthed strategies from God's heart that would lead them to victory. And some of them were rather um, inane, if you will, foolish from, my, from man's eyes. Walk around Jericho once every day for six days. And on the seventh day, just walk around it seven times, then blow the trumpets, blah, blah, blah. And, and the walls are going to come tumbling down and you're going you're gonna to go in there and you're going to win. Yeah, what? What fantasy novel did you get this from, Joshua? But they had to trust him. So God needed to elevate him in this way. God, God has a heart to do that for leaders. So this is what he did. Then the Lord said to Joshua, command the priests carrying the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests come up out of the Jordan. And the priests came up out of the river carrying the ark of the covenant of the Lord. No sooner had they set their feet on dry ground and the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and ran at flood stage as before. On the 10th day of the first month, the people went up from the Jordan and camped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. And Joshua set up at Gilgal the 12 stones they had taken out of the Jordan. He said to the Israelites in the future, when your descendants ask their fathers, what do these stones mean? Tell them Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground, which just in that sentence itself is a miracle to dry, to, excuse me, to walk on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan just what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all the people of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. Again, what is a memorial? What is the purpose of a memorial? It is to remember. We looked at Deuteronomy last week, Deuteronomy 8. Actually, this word remembers used 16 times in the book of Deuteronomy as he's recounting the law. Do not forget. Remember. I believe God wants us to remember. But why is he want, why did he do this miracle? The very first thing that we encounter is what I mentioned. He wanted to exalt Joshua. I do believe that God wants to exalt his leaders. I believe God wants to exalt his leaders, whether it would be in the church or, or business or in the family. God needs and wants to exalt them so that people are able to respect them and be able to follow them. Secondly, God wants to plant testimonies or in this, he wanted to plant a testimony in all the tribes of Israel and their descendants. And so what I want to do is I want us to look at these two concepts because they are so crucial for God raising up a generation 
in our day that is mighty in the land that recognizes this is the enemy and I refuse to play into his tactics. I refuse to, to, to play his hand. God wants to do this in our day. I believe, and I'm going to get very specific here, I believe God wants to raise up mighty parents in this generation so that they will be able to recognize the hand of God, build memorials um, so that their children will always remember. And I'm going to flesh that part out in just a little bit. But right now I want us to focus on this moms and dads. Moms and dads. I believe that Satan's number one tactic to keeping God's grace out of our homes, the power of God at bay is internal fighting. You know, those long trips that we would take, fighting, fighting. Total distraction from what God, I believe, wanted us to be focusing on and truly what my parents wanted us to be focusing on. Um, it, it, I, I think they would rather um, have what happened in that last half hour to an hour in which we were constantly asking, are we there yet, than to be able for us to have this fighting amongst ourselves. But we get distracted. We get bored. We would take our focus off the goal and we would start ta- thinking and talking about one another and, and blah, blah, blah. This happens in our homes. I believe that for us to, as families, be able to embrace all that God has for us, this promised land, if you will, we need to keep our focus on that and be mission-minded because if we do not, we will start focusing on the problems. Now, uh, problems in our home. Now, I am all about resolving problems in our home, but here's the problem with that. We, we tend, when we encounter a problem, we tend to want to find someone to blame for this problem. And parents, here is the problem. We tend to blame one another. And when our children see this happening, they fail to respect and honor us as leaders. But what is God's goal? What is God's goal here? It was to exalt Joshua. The people of Israel needed to be unified as they moved forward. That is why he gave very clear directions. The Ark of the Covenant is to go before you. That represents the presence and power of God. Number two, don't go anywhere near the Ark of the Covenant. Now, they didn't scatter out over 10 to 20 miles to cross, but they kept a distance of about a half a mile from the ark, and then together they crossed over on dry ground. They did so unified. Um, If you were to turn to James chapter 4, do that with me if you would, James chapter 4, You're going to see the significance and the connection here between argumentation and the cutting off of God's blessing or the word that James uses is grace. Grace, what is it? Again, grace is everything that God has that I do not, but what? Desperately need. 
Everything that God has that I do not but desperately need. It's not just about salvation, though that's very significant. It's not just about forgiveness of sins, though that's very important. But we need to encounter this thing of God's grace every day in our lives. And James' goal here is to say, you're not experiencing God's grace. When you pray, God doesn't answer why, he tells us. James chapter 4. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. Skipping down, you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you ask, uh, you do not receive because you do not ask. You ask with wrong motives that you may spend them to get your pleasures. Selfish orientation. Focus on internal desires, pleasures, what I want, and consequently what I'm not getting. And when I don't get it, who's to blame? And this would constantly, this envying and selfish ambition would create quarrels. When our focus is not outward on the needs of the people around us, they will eventually turn inward and focus on our problems, and specifically this person's problem. In the car, it was, my, it was the problem of my brother next to me. He was being careless as he turned the comic book pages and he would bump me. I got irritated. I eventually bumped him back and he bumped me, and you know how that goes. And so we got into this touching game just to irritate one another. That was our goal. We just wanted to irritate each other. Why? Because our focus was not out there. It was right here. Quarreling out of selfishness like this is pride. Now, again, I did say that if, if there's problems in our home, we need to resolve them. But more often than not, here's what happens. One spouse goes to the other and she says, you know what? Here is a problem that is in the home and I think it's your fault. They're usually much more tactful than that, but that's, how the, that's what the other spouse hears. This problem is all your fault. Now, I'm all about setting the record straight, but here's our problem when we try to do that. We get defensive and the pro we view the problem as this big, and our spouse just said, no, it's this big, and it's all your fault. So we reality check here. The problem is only this big. And so what happens? No, 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 no. It is nowhere near that small. It is this big. Now, the, the, the truth is it's somewhere in between, but we get defensive, don't we? Again, I, I'm all about let's, let's get right information. But if it leans towards me being defensive, it's not worth it. it. Relationships are not expendable at the defense of being right. It's just, they're just not. And so I'm going to encourage you to, to do what Hezekiah challenged the Israelites to do. And... Before I touch on that, let me, let me just say this and, and kind of complete this thought. James is addressing this issue of arguing. In addressing the issue of arguing, he's saying there is pride there. 
There is selfishness, selfish ambition. And he concludes with this Old Testament quote. He said, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We just went through a series on grace and accessing that grace. And we learned that a crucial Integral part of it is the necessity for us to be humble, have servants' hearts, to be teachable. But what, what does the enemy want to do? He wants to stir up trouble. He wants to stir up gossip. He wants to stir up slander. It's not just in homes, it's in churches. And we start becoming internally uh, focused rather than outwardly focused. Whenever you take your eyes off of the fields that are white and ready for harvest, they will always come back in and we will always find problems. And when you do that and you start bickering and challenging and gossiping and slandering and these types of things, then what happens? You have disunity, you have dissension, you have discord, and God cannot bless. He's got to get rid of that. And so my challenge is, let's get rid of that in our church, let's get rid of that in our homes, because this is Satan's number one tactic. He wants to bring disunity in the body of Christ. He wants to bring dissension in your home. Moms and dads, God wants to exalt you in the eyes of your children so that they will honor you and respect you and follow your lead. But if we keep biting each other and devouring and arguing and being defensive and stirring up the argument more, you have fallen prey into Satan's trap and you have lifted yourself up in pride and God cannot pour out his grace upon the proud. Do you see? There's something in us when there's a problem and we feel accused. We want to give a defense. But I want you to notice that in Isaiah 36, Isaiah 36 is an interesting uh, passage. There's about four chapters here in which Isaiah um, goes back to the book of Kings and he reiterates uh, some history here. And this is in that particular passage. And in Isaiah 36, 21, or just before that, what we have is we have the, uh, the field commander of the Assyrians. The Assyrians are beginning to take over the world. They're conquering nation after nation. They're now coming right outside Jerusalem's gate, right outside the wall. And the field commander is saying, hey, you need to surrender to us. You need to pay this immense tribute because if you do not, we will decimate you. We will destroy you, level you. Let me bring to your attention, and if you think that your God can rescue us, think about it, and he begins to recount what happened to this nation and this city, and their gods could not rescue them. Do you really think that your God is unique and will somehow rescue you? Absolutely not. And Hezekiah, in chapter 36, in view of, because the people were gathered, they're listening to this commander speaking these things and these accusations against God, etc. And this is what he says in verse 21. But the people remained silent and said nothing in reply because the king had commanded, do not answer them. Don't answer false accusations like this. 
It's easy for us to get defensive when your spouse comes to you and is just angry and hurt and just begins to point things out one after the other. Don't get defensive. Don't feel the need to defend yourself. You might be able to say, well, I'm absolutely hearing what you're saying. And if you can recognize fault, own the fault. But do not step into Satan's trap by getting defensive and wanting to attack. When that happens, you will dishonor one another before your family and you will now, being lifted up in pride, you will hold at bay the grace of God that he is anxiously and longing and desiring to pour into your family because he wants to do awesome things. He wants you to build memorials. And many of us were wondering, well, I don't have tremendous testimonies like this. And I'm, I'm not trying to lay some heavy guilt trip on you. But could it not be that because of our internal fighting, husband to wife and even spouse to or parent to child, that we are cutting short the grace of God that he is longing to pour out upon our families? And so this is Satan's number one, number one tactic disunity. Disunity is like cancer and it eats away at the body of Christ. It eats away at families who are seeking to make Christ their center and it cuts short the grace of God from intervening and stepping in. Do you want God to answer your prayers Men, do you want God to step in and do awesome things? Peter gives us a hint of this in 1 Peter 3, 7. And he says, then you need to dwell with your spouse as the weaker vessel and consider them as the co-heir with Christ. Because, and this is what he says, if you do not, this will hinder your prayers. Do you see the connection here? Wives, oh, wait a second now. He doesn't, he, he, he doesn't just hang the men out to dry here because he is challenging us. Can, can I just throw this out here? Uh, and I'm not even going to use a shield to block myself at this point. But you know what he, he commends Sarah for saying? You know what word she uses to address her husband? She uses the, she uses the word kurios, which means Lord, Master, or Sir. Actually, who, some, one of my kids was asking me about this. Wasn't it you guys? Diego, you were asking me about it. Wow, so do, should our wives call us master? And boy, some of you ladies are wondering, what is Pastor Mike going to say now? You're just waiting, aren't you? And I said, absolutely. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I said, in that... Understand, we don't use that. The word master in our culture is a term that is so easily associated with slavery. So I'm not going to re recommend the word master. But understand in the context, this word kurios also means sir. And whatever term is used, whatever terms, however wives communicate to their husbands, it needs to recognize honor, or, or uphold honor and respect. To demean your husband would be the exact opposite because in the context, the desire is to want to tell the husband who is an unbeliever, you are, you are ruining our family, uh, your ungodliness is destroying us, blah, blah, blah. And, she, and the, Peter's challenge is, 
obey without a word. Wow. My heart goes out to women who are called to follow men who are poor leaders. And in all honesty, I have at times been one of those. And my wife, there were times in which she gave me an earful and challenged me, but there were other times in which she just zipped the lip and she said, okay, and she prayed. And she knew that I was making a wrong decision. I tried to listen to her, but man, I was, this is what we're going to do. And, and I was not being led by God. So my heart goes out to the women. But the truth is, on both sides of this, if we fail to honor and respect one another, we are going to breed dissension. We are wanting to defend ourselves. We're wanting to point the finger. You're the one. You see this problem in our family? It is your fault. And, I'm gonna, I, and I tell the guys this when we get together, and it's just that, ladies, I never have a one-on-one meeting with you, but I'm sure my wife challenges you with this. But with the guys, I tell them this. When there's a problem in your family, you take full ownership. When an owner of a company comes to the store manager and the store is not performing well, he looks to the manager and the manager does not give him a litany of people or a list of people that are to be blamed for it. He takes full responsibility. Men, we take full responsibility. If your wife has something to say to challenge us, we listen. That is their right. Ladies, don't cross that line. There is a line there. You can speak to your husbands in a way that will cause them to be defensive. You will hurt him. You will rant. Emotion from hurt or worry can overtake you, and you will overstate the case. You will say the problem is this big when it's actually only this big, but the husband truly probably thinks it's only this big. That's just the tendency, and you're going to get pushback, and there will be an argument. Ladies, can I just tell you this? When you don't buy into this concept of catharsis that the, psycholo- the world of psychology is tossing out to us. Catharsis is this idea that if I just talk it through, I'll feel better. So after the fourth and fifth time of talking it through, you have so stressed out your husband because he is not wired emotionally as you are and he is overwhelmed and he is at this point where he is going to push back. Don't do that. Don't seek to push his buttons. Don't seek to make him grovel even though he may be wrong. Just share the issue with him one time. Now, I'm all for sharing problems. It's just that some of us, we feel, and guys, we can do this too. We share the problem over and over and over and over again. And it's this concept of catharsis. And it's planted in our mind. I need to talk about it until I feel better. What scripture verse do you get from the Bible that says talk about your problem until you feel better? Is talking about the problem the answer to the problem? No, the answer to the problem is this. The husband listens to you and he says, you know what? I think you're right. I'm just going to kneel down right now and I'm going to repent before the Lord. First of all, would you forgive me? Because you've already, the lady, ladies, you've already shared it one time. He feels you're about to share it a second, possibly a third, fourth, or even fifth or sixth time. He knows how this goes. So he's being wise. He's being humble. He says, you're right. I am so sorry. Let's pray. Here's the amazing thing that I have found in this answer. 
Because when I say to my wife, let's pray instead of, excuse me, back the truth trolley up and let me give you a real download of what really happened. Now I'm in defensive mode and I'm going to lash out and I will probably end my version of the story with, it's really your fault, right? Does this sound even vaguely familiar to you? The kids are hearing this, by the way, even though you think by being in your bedroom and, and you're shouting in a quiet voice, yeah, uh, that somehow they're not hearing because this happens. And I've fallen prey to it too many times and I'm sick and tired of it. And my wife and I have learned so that over the years that type of argumentation has dwindled. And I would venture to say dwindled drastically, but it's, here's my description. It's still there. It can still happen. I can still step into that noose and boom, I can step into his trap and get, get caught up in it. But as men, here's what I have found, especially men saying to the ladies, and ladies, you can do this with the men. If you feel that they are starting to attack, you know what, I'm so sorry. You're absolutely right. Let's pray. Because ladies, men, here's what the ladies are wanting to hear from you. They're making the problem this big because they, don't, they feel that if you don't see how big the problem is, you won't get it and you're going to do it all over again. But when you acknowledge, wow, you are right. Those three words are magical in your wife's ears. You are right. Wow. I am Sorry, three more very magical words. And by the way, this goes the other way too. I am sorry. Let us pray. The last three magical words. Let us pray. And then get down and pray. And wives, if, if your husband has humbled himself to you and he said, I'm so sorry, let's pray. Don't start off by saying, thank you, God, so much that you finally convicted my husband about how terrible he has been to me. You don't do that, okay? He's probably going to get up and walk out, okay? But pray. And if at that moment the emotion is too strong and there is a hindrance to take that step to pray, and there's the talk keeps going and going. Here's what I've encouraged people to do. You know what? Here, before I say it, here, here's an observation that I have as a pastor. I have yet to see an argument resolved when tempers are flaring. It just doesn't happen. When you're angry, nothing good comes out of it. Let me say that again. When you are angry, nothing good ever comes out of it. Nothing. But we feel as if we've got to argue our case, like we're in a court of law. But when you do that, what good are you expecting? So here's what I encourage him to do. Be the first to say, you know what? I realize that right now I am getting angry. Don't say, right now I recognize that you are very angry. Well, hello, of course he is or she is. So what are we going to do about it? Just own it. Right now I am feeling angry. And if I say anything, I know I'm going to regret it. So can we just take a time out? Nothing good is going to come of this arguing. You're angry. Let's work through the anger and at another time talk about it. 
But don't just say, well, then fine, and walk out, drive away for an hour, and come back in a huff, you know, usually going into the kitchen, throwing things around. Am I far off course here, people? This happens, okay? And we want to know, we want our spouse to know, okay, I have presently entered this house that is my domain too, and I want you to know. So we pick up the pot, and we throw it, a dirty pot, and we throw it into the, 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 the sink. We're making noise to say, I am home, and I I am still angry and I am waiting for your apology, okay? And, and we don't say those words, but our actions are clanging and throwing and are mumbling as we're walking down the hallway that we're calling some sort of prayer here, really. Um, that we're wanting our spouse to know, I am still really ticked at you and you have not called me or apologized to me and I want you to know I'm not letting you go, buddy, or I'm not letting you go, wife, or whatever. And, and God is just saying, man, if you could just humble yourself and when you feel the temper and the anger rising within you, just say, you know what, I'm getting angry right now and this is on me and you may be right and I need to hear you more, but if I engage in this, it's not going to be good. And I just know that and don't just walk out and say, can we just grab some time and talk about it later? Now, guys, when is later? Your wife will want to know when is later because she might feel you're sweeping this under the carpet. Just say, you know what, maybe in an hour or at least by the end of the day, we will talk about this. I just can't right now. Okay? But so here is Satan's tactic. He has just set you up for you to dishonor one another. And in the eyes of your children, you are dishonored. And so I'm just going to encourage you, step back. Hezekiah's Hezekiah told the Israelites in the face of accusations, do not answer. Do not answer. You know what God did? Because the people did not answer, he immediately went into the temple. He went to Isaiah and he said, here's what's happening. What do I do? And Isaiah, I can, I can just picture Isaiah <laughs> as God is revealing to him what God is going to do. Oh, yeah. Yeah. God has just set an ambush for the enemy. 180,000 Assyrians camped outside the wall of Jerusalem. Israel chooses, I am not going to answer their false accusations. Your God is a wimp. You really think that he can rescue you? Look at all these other cities and nations and their gods, helpless in front of our almighty power. We are the king of the land. You need to bow and submit to us. Your God is nothing, says no word. They humble themselves. Isaiah cries out to God. I, Hezekiah cries out to God and Isaiah says in so many words, it's much longer than this. Oh, just wait. Oh, just wait. Tomorrow morning, as the watchmen step up to the top of the wall and look over, they see 180,000 Assyrians dead on the ground. God has ambushed them. God, his grace, stepped in and rescued 
his people because they chose not to engage in dissenting words and accusations and yeah, we're not even going to go there. We're not even going to go there. We don't need to. And as they humbled themselves, God poured out his grace. I really am going to finish this sermon today. In Psalm 145, um, hmm. You can turn there, Psalm 145. I, I am going to treat this much briefer than I intended. But in Psalm 145, absolutely, it's one of my favorite psalms, people. One of my favorite psalms. And it's, it's, it talks about how one generation will commend your works to another. And I just get this. It's almost as if Joshua wrote this. It says that it's a psalm of praise of David. But you get this feeling as if Joshua, you know, he, he, he set the, uh, the, the standard here by, by building this memorial and David kind of gets wind of it and he says, yes, let's, let's commend the Lord's works from one generation to the next. And he says in verse, verse 7, they will celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. He's talking about in verse 4, one generation commending your works to another, telling of your mighty acts, and it is the older ones of us speaking to the next generation fathers to their sons, moms to their daughters, parents to children, commending the works of the Lord, sitting around perhaps the dinner table at a, at a Passover and describing how God delivered them from the hand of Egypt and did 10, ten uh, miracles and parting of the Red Sea, manna, quail, water from the rock. This is the God that we serve. And the conclusion is let's celebrate his abundant goodness. Let's stop focusing on these little petty problems inside. We have something to accomplish out there. And the way the church today is stopped is by navel gazing and looking at its internal problems. How does he destroy the Christian family today? Today, I am going to create such disunity between mom and dad. The children cannot follow them. Yes, I'm going to create, there's arguing and there's hurts. I'm going to cause the man to say something so rude and cruel and unnecessary. And I'm just going to bait him. And she's going to give a little accusation. And man, he's going to come down with an iron fist. And she's going to be hurt and run out crying. And he's going to wonder, you know, what is wrong? What is your problem? This problem really is all your fault. And before you know it, there is huge disunity and division and dissension in the home. You want to raise godly children? You want to see them following hard after Christ? Build memorials. But to build memorials, God has to do miracles. To do miracles and for God to pour out his grace, we've got to get rid of all of this dissension in the home. Any dissension in the church, gone. Don't even pay attention to gossip that's out there. This is one of the main killers of churches. The main thing that causes churches to split gossip, talk, little stuff. You know, these, these people, they're, they're, they're just, when we get engaged in this kind of talk, it is only because of one thing. We have taken a hurt, we've internalized it, and we are just wanting this whole catharsis thing. Let me tell you the story again. And the person who tells you that story has probably told it to 10 other people. And they're just working through it again. And that is never the answer, ever. 
And so in that, we just say, you know what? I have nothing to do with that. That has nothing to do with me. Jesus needs to heal your heart. That's the honest truth. I'm saying that in love. But I've got a mission over here. I'm going to raise godly children. I'm going to reach the lost. There's someone at my workplace who needs to hear about Jesus, and I've been praying for them, and I need to spend more time in prayer, not here listening to gossip. This is how Satan destroys his church. What are we called to do? Celebrate his abundant goodness. Focus on the awesome things of the Lord, not the failings of one another internally. Focus on the mission. If we fail to focus on the mission, we will gaze inward. Every church dies when that happens. And they refuse to lift up their eyes to the white harvest. And it says here in verse 8, The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. And he specifically means his saints that extol him. And when you read the next verses, God, has, you are the apple of his eye. He is loving and compassionate. And when we're celebrating his abundant goodness, this is what we are reminded of. These truths, we can read about these truths. But here's an honest truth. People, we, we, can, we can hear these truths, but we need them played out. We need to see them. We're visual people. We need to see God act on our behalf. And if we are humble and we are not creating dissension, God enjoys stepping in. He enjoys answering prayers doing miracles, pouring out his grace. And when we do that, we are reminded again of his awesome compassion. But here's the last thing. Here is what Satan will do. He will whisper lies into your ear. Satan, in Genesis 3, started the whole problem of sin with this. Did God really say, and God is, excuse me, Satan is going to cause you to question God. He's going to cause you to question his compassion and love for you. He's going to cause you to wonder, is God really faithful? I mean, he seems to be answering people's prayers over here, but God, what about mine? And, and we are listening to the lies of the enemy, and God is trying to position us in a way that as we cry out to him and press into him and press into him and not give up, but we push, pray until something happens. And when we do this, then when we feel as if we're at the end of a rope, when we've prayed, God steps in in this 11th hour, 59th minute, and he displays his eyes some grace because we have pressed into him as if like the woman touching the hem of the garment of Jesus. But our problem in the body of Christ is that we hate pushing through the crowds. We hate persevering. We hate praying until something happens. And we get impatient and we listen to the lies of the enemy. He slanders God and he slanders God's people. That's his tactic. And we listen to these lies. We might say to ourselves, God loves others more than me. God is always angry with me. He never allows anything good to happen in my life. All the bad things that happen to me is God punishing me. That is not a truth. God doesn't care enough about you or about me 
to really help me out of this problem. God comes through for others, but apparently not for me. Life is just hard. Suck it up because it won't get any better. That's what we resolve to. And one more lie. You're all alone. God won't help you. Can we really trust God? That's the bottom line. Can we really trust God? Genesis 3, the question implied no. Did God really say, let me just put God on trial here. Hmm. Let me question his truth. Revelation 13, the beast, it says he slanders God, his name, his throne, and the people in heaven. That's his job, slander, accuse. He wants to accuse God before you. I'm going to encourage you today, close that door. If you've been listening to the enemy and he's been lying to you and he has been one, he's been making you wonder, well, does God really love me? This book right here says absolutely that he does. And he is waiting as you humble yourself before this truth for him then to be able to pour out his blessings. Can you stand with me? I truly believe God wants to do something amazing in our midst. God wants to do something amazing in your life. And I'm just going to say to you right now, if you can't receive what I just said, God wants to do something amazing in your life, I am going to say this, and I don't mean to be rude. That is not my, I'm not seeking to be offensive, but if that is the case and you cannot believe that, you have already fallen prey to his bait. And today, God wants to set you free from those lies. He is so fully trustworthy. And as we tell of his wonderful works, moms, dads, in our homes, as one generation commends his works to another, then what we find is faith rising up within our children. When they see mom and dad are honorable and respectable, and yes, I can trust them. They are pointing me to Jesus, and I will follow. You are raising up a generation in your day in which I believe that if we are so adamantly, passionately pursuing after Christ, we will have the privilege of seeing him come back in our day. I believe that God wants to pour out revival, but moms and dads in the homes, if we are not aware of the enemy's tactics and we constantly fall prey for them, my question is this, to what degree will God truly pour out his grace upon those who refuse to be humbled? So Father, right now, just humble us. Humble me. I want to build memorials. I want to celebrate your abundant goodness. I want to declare your awesome, amazing works to my children. And I want to do it every week. 
I want to hear what you are doing in their lives, God. And I want to hear what miracle or awesome opportunity they had to share Christ today. I want to hear how God protected them or delivered them. These are the things I want to talk about. These are the things I want to fill my home with. May we always remember you, God. You challenge us to do this so that we will always fear you. To be amazed and in awe of you. So God, do amazing things. Get rid of the disunity in our homes, in our churches in America. Do amazing things in our midst and may we tell of your awesome works and celebrate them constantly and so be filled with faith. And when this happens, God, I do believe we will take the land. So Jesus, we surrender to you anything in our hearts that's keeping that from happening in Jesus' name.